BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And it is March Madness. Get ready to fill out your bracket of the 2020 Democratic candidates. <laughs> That's a new bracket for 2019. What do you say, everybody? Here we go on a Monday. It is Monday, March 18, and this is The Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you uh, had a great, great weekend, a relaxing weekend. Um, I certainly did. Uh, in fact, uh, that included uh, taking Friday off, and uh, a good shout-out to Daniela uh, Gibbs-Leger for uh, filling in here uh, with the help of Peter and Ray on Friday. Uh, so good to see you today, and boy, we got lots and lots to talk about. It was a uh, busy and not uh, a news-filled weekend, not not all good news, uh, horrific tragedy, uh, another mass murder, uh, this one, another by white supremacists down in New Zealand. We've all been worldwide reeling from the news of that, both the bloody carnage, uh, the tragic loss of 50 lives, and the tales of heroism on the part of some of the people who were in that mosque who rushed toward uh, the killer rather than running away. Uh, one man killed trying to tackle the killer. Uh, incredible story, and the government of New Zealand has said they've already made their decision about what they're going to do about semi-automatic weapons in this country. We still haven't come to grips with that. So we got a lot of talk, lot and lots to talk about a lot on the uh, 2020 political front as well. Get ready to send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, on Twitter, at BP Show. We want to hear from you, whether you're watching or uh, on television, listening on the radio, or watching us online. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. And we have lots to talk about, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Okay. Just a couple of other stories making news. So you and I have talked about this before. I like when mysteries stay mysteries, right? When, what, when you don't find out? When you don't find out. Well, one of the things that we might no longer be a mystery is the identity of Jack the Ripper. 
Really? Researchers at Liverpool's John Moore's Jack University. Jack the Ripper wasn't Jack the Ripper? Was not. His first name wasn't Jack. Uh, at John Moore's University in Liverpool, they conducted genetic tests on uh, a shawl that was found uh-huh. that had the blood of a victim, but also there was other blood on it. Blood Ooh, of the of person the... who committed the crime. Oh. And it turns out that it was a Polish man by the name of Aaron Kosminski. Aaron Kosminski, and they say, quote, we described for the first time systematic molecular level analysis of the only surviving physical evidence linked to Jack the Ripper murders, and they say that this is the guy. Whoa. This is the guy. Uh, Well, I hope they're going to pull him in and throw the book at him. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, what's the statute (laughs) of limitations? Is it more than 150 years? years? Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Uh, all right. Well, baseball season is almost here. I know you're excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies are excited because they have Bryce Harper. Uh, they're so excited. In fact, I got tickets for my first game. You going on opening day? No, no, no. Oh, just for it's the... in June. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, when the Phillies come back in June. Whatever. Oh, oh, you're going to the, you're going to see Bryce Harper when he comes yes. back. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If you want to go see the Philadelphia Phillies in Philadelphia, the ticket sales have gone through the roof, uh, and the ticket prices are even worse. So on StubHub, which is sort of the secondary market, if you buy tickets, you can resell them on StubHub, oftentimes for a profit. The sales price has gone up 93% for Phillies games since Bryce Harper was announced uh, (laughs) as joining the team. 93%. Yeah. So what usually costs, you know, And, you know, I'm sure the owners are saying... um, this is why we pay these big salaries. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, look, it, it's it, not only is it that the Philadelphia Phillies are going to be charging more money for uh, the tickets, but the fans are able to charge more secondarily, right? Like on these things, so they can make more money after the fact. Everybody's making money. This is the Bill Press Show. Tragedy in New Zealand. But unlike here in the United States, the government of New Zealand is quick to respond and to take action. What do you say? Hello, everybody. Happy Monday. Monday, May, March. March. And that's not Russian. (laughs) March 18, 2019. It is the Bill Press Show. And we are joining you wherever you are. In the United States of America and around the globe, joining you online, on the radio, and on television. Good to see you today. I hope you had a relaxing weekend, uh, had some time to kick back, uh, recharge your batteries, hang out with friends and family, uh, and ready to go into another, you know, very jammed news week. As uh, as we always say, there's never a dull news day and never a dull news week uh, in the era of Donald Trump. And that's for sure. I mean, just keeping up with his tweets yesterday uh, kept you busy if you were in the news business. But what's good to see you today on television, on Free Speech TV, it's good to see you online. Thanks for joining us right at uh, Bill, uh, on, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, which is also where you find our podcast every day right after the show is done here our early 7 to 9 East Coast time. Podcast is up. You can catch the rest of the show that you might have missed during your morning commute or whatever. And uh, it's good to see you on the radio. How about it? 
Hello, Chicago, WCPT. Good to have you with us and statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks as well. Uh, Lots and lots to talk about. Let's start with this tragic news from New Zealand. So many aspects of it to comment on, but, you know, it was so shocking. Uh, Another place of worship of all places. It seems that religious sanctuaries have become the prime targets of uh, these mass murderers. Uh, Again, so that that fact, shocking aspect of it, also shocking that of all places it would occur in New Zealand, we think of New Zealand and Australia as relatively quiet and peaceful and peace-loving and non-violent cultures and societies, which they are for the most part, uh, Australia having very, very tough gun laws, New Zealand not so tough, uh, and they learned one of the consequences of that uh, now over the weekend when this white supremacist and avowed white supremacist uh, doing all of this online uh, enters one mosque, goes to another mosque, ends up killing a total of 50 people. That's the count so far. It could even go up. Some people are still hospitalized, wounding and uh, dozen, dozens more. Uh, and putting it up online and basically bragging about it, issuing a manifesto, a totally white manif- white supremacist manifesto. So um, certainly our thoughts to the good people of New Zealand. Uh, and just, just, a, just again, so many aspects of it to talk about. One is what's really troubling is this, his use of the Internet. Um, what I saw Facebook said this morning, they down, they, they, they cut out, eliminated one and a half million videos of that whole, it's about 17, 20-minute video. Um, but you know, the internet, which has, it's just such a remarkable platform for us to use to communicate, um, to find out, search and learn anything we need. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible opportunity and wealth of information, and yet at the same time, it's provided a lot of people a platform for hate and violence and giving the worst the worst among us uh, an opportunity to spread their evil and their hate, hatred around the world. And uh, and it's like there's a whole community yeah. festering on the internet. And, and these big tech companies don't seem to have the capacity to clean it up or to to filter that stuff out. What's really amazing is it's I think troubling. you look at these big tech companies, right? Like Facebook or YouTube or Twitter. Uh, and the genie has sort of gotten out of the bottle, right? Like they've lost the handle yeah. on how to um, sort of keep things in order on their own platform because it is run by, you know, it's it's social, obviously, right? Yeah. And so when you have all of these people putting all of this content out there, how do you regulate it? How do you reel it in? And you combine that, which is obviously a problem, with the fact that they don't really seem to see it as a problem. Yeah. That's the bigger issue. But, you know, it's just like anybody can put anything up there as ugly as ugly as it is, and then it gets picked up by other people and, as to, to use the overworked phrase, goes viral. Uh, and um, the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, I don't know the answer. It's just really, really troubling. I mean, there have been evil people in the world as long as humans have been upright, right? But they've never had the capacity, evil people, that they have today to spread their evil. 
Um, so there's that whole aspect of it. Um, and, and then another aspect of it, which I, I have to tell you I find really remarkable, is that, look, what have we done in this country about um, military-style weapons, semi-automatic, automatic weapons? Nothing. Yeah, we had a ban against them for 10 years, 1994 to 2000, thanks to Senator Dianne Feinstein, expired in 2004, 15 years, and we've done nothing. And yet we've lived through Sandy Hook, we've lived through Las Vegas, we've lived through Parkland, Florida, nothing, nothing, nothing. 15 years. In New Zealand, within one day. It was one day uh, later, the ne- maybe the same day or the very next day, that the Prime Minister, uh, Yacinda Ardern, uh, came out and said, hey, she said the first day we're going to change our gun laws. It was the next day she said we've already decided what we're going to do. They haven't announced it yet, uh, rightfully. They've got to take some time to make sure uh, that they that, that that they do it correctly. Um, but she she did tell 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 the people of New Zealand uh, we've decided we're going to act. Here she is. We have made an uh, a, a decision as a cabinet. We're unified. There's simply there's simply details to work through. Um, uh, these aren't simple uh, areas of law. And so that's simply what we'll be taking the time to get right. Right. Uh, so they made their decision. Didn't take them long. They know what they got to do. They're going to do it. Uh, and she said the big question that they've been asking and we should be asking is, we have been asking, but not enough of us, why the hell does anybody need a military-style weapon? And I think what the public rightly are asking right now is why is it and how is it that you should and are currently able to buy military-style semi-automatic weapons in New Zealand? Makes no sense. The police commissioner down there saying to people of New Zealand, all right, you got one of these? You might as well bring them in now because you're going to lose it anyhow. So if you want to bring them in, uh, get ahead of the curve, we're ready for you. I'm also aware of the announcement the Prime Minister has made today, so we stand ready if people would like uh, to bring in their uh, firearms and surrender them to us. Yes, so uh, they're they're united and they're going to be they're going to be taking action. It, uh, it's it's so uh, <laughs> hopeful, but also so dispiriting. Yeah, to watch yeah. this happen. Like, yeah, I I think it's wonderful what they're doing, and you just think that if someone was to have the same reaction here in America and say. Hey, bring us bring us your guns now, because we're gonna yeah. come get them if you don't. Yeah. Or how? Like, what would happen here in in this country? Oh, like, Barack oh. Obama never even came close to threatening to take your guns. Yeah. And they turned it into this huge thing. Like, I wish he had come and taken some guns. Or just if one of our presidents, whether it was Democrat or Republican, Barack Obama or George Bush or Donald Trump, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, after Sandy Hook, had said, obviously. These weapons don't belong in private hands or military-style weapons, battlefield weapons. We're going to do something about it the way uh, Prime Minister Ardern did right it, away. It just shows that we as a nation have just given up. Totally. Totally. We've just given up on To this an issue. NRA, which is not that powerful. No. Yeah. I mean, we saw the last time in the, con- in the congressional hearings in 2018, uh, you can stand up for sensible gun laws background checks, getting rid of automatic weapons, and uh, and still get elected or re-elected. 
to the United States Congress for those politicians who are still worried about that. So that's another aspect. The other aspect of it is, look, um, there is a growing, another really troubling aspect, there is a growing pattern of white supremacist hate acts. I, I saw this morning, 39, last year, 39 out of 50 extremist killings, which were tracked by the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, were committed by white supremacists. 39 out of the 50 that were tracked identified last year, white supremacists. And we've seen this. We saw them uh, in Charlottesville. We saw them, uh, saw a white supremacist in the the slaughter at the uh, synagogue in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, and yet, we see Donald Trump over the weekend who says, oh, denying there's any problem, just blind to this um, ri- rising um, evidence of white supremacist uh, atrocities committed by white supremacists. When Donald Trump was asked about it in the Oval Office, he says, oh, no, 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 it's not a problem. Rising threat around the world. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know enough about it yet. Small group of people. Oh yeah, New Zealand, Charlottesville, Pittsburgh, and beyond. Thirty-nine out of fifty last year. And what Donald Trump certainly doesn't realize, and I'm not blaming him. Before anybody accuses me of it, I'm not blaming him for what happened in New Zealand. But you've got to say words do matter. And Donald Trump has said said things which encourage white supremacists, starting with Charlottesville. Maybe not starting with Charlottesville, but Charlottesville, where he said, you know, they're good people on both sides. No, there weren't. Donald Trump, who repeated that just over the weekend. Listen to this. Here's what he said about... In an interview with Breitbart, why is he still talking to Breitbart? At any rate, Donald Trump says, you know, the left, listen carefully here, you know, the left plays a tougher game. It's very funny. I actually think that the people on the right are tougher, but they don't play it tougher, okay? I can tell you, I have the support of the police, the the support of the military, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they go to a certain point, and then it would be very bad, very bad. Almost encouraging violence. Remember one other time he said, don't worry, the Second Amendment people will take care of those liberal judges that are being appointed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, It's not even a dog whistle. No. So remember what he said after Charlottesville. Remember this thing about I got the tough people, and they're going to, if they act out, it's going to be very, very tough, right? Yeah, remember over the weekend, what was he doing? Praising Janine Pirro, who was thrown off a fox, at least for one week, we don't know for how long, uh, because of her Islamophobic comments uh, on, on the air. So these people are getting a signal from Donald Trump, there's no doubt about it, that it's okay to act out. In fact, the gunman down in, in New Zealand, again, not blaming Donald Trump, but in his manifesto, he says that he considers Donald Trump, quote, these are his words, a symbol of renewed white identity 
and common purpose. So worldwide, these supremacists see Donald Trump as one of them, encouraging them, certainly tolerating them, and then he comes out and says, oh, no, there's no problem here. It's just we don't have to be concerned about this. It's just a small group of people. No, it's not. 39 out of 50 attacks last year identified by the ADL um, coming from white supremacists. But at least, at least I think we're going to see some action. We will see some action on the part of the government uh, of New Zealand. Uh, meanwhile, uh, so Donald Trump's response was, number one, dismissing the threat of the white supremacist movement around the world. Um, and, and then he spent his time, as I mentioned, um, defending, not talking about New Zealand, all of his tweets over the weekend, not talking about New Zealand. He was talking about, I mean, personal grievances, right? Going after his enemies again uh, and defending his friends, defending Janine Pirro, saying Fox has to bring her back. We don't care that she makes Islamophobic, uh, so does he, right? So he identifies with her. Yeah, we know why he likes her so much. He spent his time attacking two weekend hosts on Fox, saying they must have been trained at CNN. They're so bad. <laughs> I guess he did a critical story about about Donald Trump. And he spent his weekend, he spent Sunday morning, get this, Sunday morning attacking John McCain, claiming that John McCain was basically a traitor because he voted against, he voted not to repeal Obamacare and replace it with nothing, and that Donald Trump, that John McCain was a traitor to Donald Trump, at least, because he gave the Steele dossier, the Christopher Steele dossier, to the FBI. Well, good for John McCain for doing that, because the Steele dossier had some pretty, um, pretty tough stuff in it, uh, and some pretty critical comments about Donald Trump in it, not all of which have been proven true yet. But the FBI took it seriously enough that they started their investigation. Uh, John McCain was doing his duty, if you ask me, as a United States senator, not to make it public. He didn't have a news conference and accused Donald Trump of all this stuff. He gave it to the FBI and said, you ought to look into this. This is, this is, these are some pretty serious charges in this dossier. Um, so John McCain, uh, Donald Trump spends Sunday morning attacking John McCain, and then he went off to church. <laughs> at St. John's across Lafayette Park from the White House, the President's Church, they call it. Uh, it. It sort of made history because how long has he been there now? Two and two years and three months? Yeah. First time Donald Trump Donald Trump has gone to church on a Sunday. Just want to point that I out. Mean... Yeah. So first, <laughs> we do the very unchristian thing of attacking John McCain uh, by name and then going off to church. Um, Megan McCain whom I usually don't agree with, came. I, I thought she had a good line tweeting out. Uh, if you've got it handy there, Peter. Yeah, she tweeted yesterday, no one will ever love you the way they love my father. <laughs> I wish I had been given more Saturdays with him. Maybe spend yours with your family instead of on Twitter obsessing over mine. <laughs> uh, I think that first part of her statement is very, very true. No yeah. one will ever love Donald Trump the way they love John McCain. Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Remember that service for John McCain at the National Cathedral. What was really interesting, and Meghan McCain retweeted this, was uh, Lindsey Graham had to come out and tweet because, you know, he and John McCain were best friends. Yes. And then now he and Donald Trump are best friends. Yes. And so now he's caught in the middle of mom and dad fighting. 
he had to say, as to Senator John McCain and his devotion to this country, he stepped forward to risk his life for his country, served honorably under difficult circumstances, and was one of the most consequential senators in the history of the body. Nothing about his service will ever be changed or diminished. So that's the word from Lindsey Graham, who had to sort of separate from uh, Donald Trump. Well, I'm glad Lindsey Graham didn't come out and also dump on John McCain. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, I didn't talk about this uh, Friday with uh, Daniel Gibbs-Legebe, uh, but the president did, as he promised, veto the resolution, which would have overturned the emergency declaration. Uh, the vote was pretty one-sided in the United States uh, Senate. Here's the announcement of the vote. The yeas are 59, the nays are 41. The joint resolution is passed. Joint resolution was passed by the House, by the Senate, went to the president, and he assembled all of his uh, ass kissers in the Oval Office, uh, Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo and William Barr, the attorney general, uh, while he did the um, ceremonial veto of that emergency declaration telling reporters, telling the world, he had a duty to do it. Today I am vetoing this resolution. Congress has the freedom to pass this resolution, and I have the duty to veto it, and I'm very proud to veto it. Yep. All right. There he goes. What's interesting, though, is the... So there were 12 Republicans who broke ranks. 12 Republicans, uh, I think the honor roll goes today to the 12 Republicans who stood up for the United States Constitution and not for the president of the United States, who, were, who stood up for the constitutional role of Congress. Uh, and so this was a matter of putting the country above their party. And I, I think it's worth saluting again those who did so. Listen to the list and remember who's not on it. So those voting to, for the resolution, for the Constitution, Lamar Alexander, Tennessee, Roy Blunt, Missouri, Senator Collins, Maine, Mitt Romney, Utah, Marco Rubio. By the good for Marco. Yeah, well, look, we'll give him a little bit of credit. Florida, Pat Toomey, Pennsylvania, Roger Wicker, Mississippi, Mike Lee, Utah, Jerry Moran of Kansas, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rand Paul, he came through. We weren't sure that he would, of Kentucky, and Rob Portman of Ohio. Notably missing from that list is Tom Tillis, one of the four from North Carolina, one of the four who said that he was going to vote for the resolution. At the very last minute, he caved. Another one that's not on there, Ben Sass, who has been one of the most outspoken critics of Donald Trump and um, who caved. By the way, he's up for re-election in 2020. Think that had anything to do with it? I would imagine so. And Ben Sass caved and blamed it on Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> he said he thought this was un, uh, an overreach on Donald Trump's part. He thought this was an abuse of the Constitution, but he had to vote against it in order to, because otherwise he would have been giving in, he called something to the bare-knuckle politics of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, give me a break. Anyway. Good Still hide behind the boogie woman. Yeah, yeah. Still. One more time. Still. Uh, good for uh, good for those twelve for uh, for breaking ranks. And uh, by the way, again, um, we knew that was going to happen, uh, but it'll give um, the opponents to the resolution um, a lot of um, ammunition when they go into the courts to challenge it.
Uh, I want to say a word. We've got a lot, to, a lot of 2020 we're going to talk about, uh, which we will with uh, Ginger Gibson from Reuters a little bit later. In fact, looking at our list coming up here, um, Ginger Gibson from Reuters will be joining us to talk about 2020. Larry Cohen, head of the chairman of, the, of Our Revolution, the great organization founded by uh, Senator Bernie Sanders after the 2016 primary, will be joining us to talk about Bernie and the fact that the Bernie campaign has formed its own union. Uh, and we'll start out with Jennifer Shutt from Roll Call uh, to talk about this, more about this uh, emergency declaration and every, uh, other, other um, action here on the Hill. Um, but I want to say a word about uh, a good friend of mine that we lost over the weekend. At the age of 91, Senator, former Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana. Birch was an incredible person, got to know him well. Uh, and in terms of, as a, in terms of a United States senator, he had a tremendous impact uh, in the Senate. You know, most senators and most members of Congress, when they're gone, you, 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 you find it hard to remember anything that they did while they were there. Not Birch Bayh. Birch Bayh's specialty was making the Constitution, uh, expanding the Constitution uh, to make it stronger and better for all Americans. Um, it was Birch Bayh who wrote and passed, got passed, the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, which, of course, provides for succession. Um, if there's, um, a, you have to appoint a new vice president, or if the president becomes disabled, and it's been talked about with Donald Trump, uh, and the cabinet and the vice president have to um, go to Congress and uh, take the powers away from the disabled president. So this is the 25th Amendment, Birch Bayh. The 26th Amendment, which gave 18-year-olds the right to vote in state and federal elections, Birch Bayh. Two amendments to the Constitution. There are only two people, as the New York Times points out this morning, in history, in our history, who have amended, uh, who are responsible for amending the Constitution more than once, more than one time. Only two people in our history. One is Birch Bayh and the other is James Madison. That's a hell of the, a trivial pursuit question. And the question. Bill of Rights. There you go. That's pretty That's good. That's a hell of a trivial pursuit question and a hell of a record, right? A hell of a distinction, a hell of an honor. But not only that, Birch Bayh also authored the ERA, uh, unsuccessfully trying to amend the Constitution. He authored another constitutional amendment, which didn't pass, which would have abolished the Electoral College way back then. He offered an amendment which would have given the people of the residents of the District of Columbia, the right to vote and their vote count, meaning representation in the United States Senate. And he offered another amendment to the Constitution, uh, which would have uh, lowered the um, the um, eligible age for members of the House from 25 to 22. So incredible, incredible legacy that he leaves. And on top of that, Birch Bayh is the author of Title IX. He was the one who got t Title IX passed, which, of course, ended any form of discrimination in our colleges and universities against women, and particularly is responsible for the, for the hugely successful women's athletic programs uh, in campuses across the country. So an incredible legacy uh, that, uh, that Birch Bay left, uh, representing not just the people of Indiana, but uh, all Americans. He ran for president in 1976. 
in a very, very crowded field back when I was working for Jerry Brown. Yeah, right, right. Uh, did not do so well, but it was, again, a very crowded field, but certainly a huge contribution uh, in the United States Senate and uh, served served us well. Great man. Got a lot, lot more we didn't even get to. 2020, we got that. We got more about Bernie and the union. Um, some interesting political news from uh, California, all of which we will get to coming up. We start off with Jennifer Shutt from Roll Call. Give us a quick break. We'll be right back here on this Monday, March 18th. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Monday, March 18th, uh, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. Good to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us as we come to you live from Washington, D.C. and our studio on Capitol Hill. Brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, the great men and women of the AFGE, the largest federal employees union, under the leadership of President J. David Cox, the people who keep our federal agencies running day in and day out all across this land, serving Americans. Uh, Check out their website at afge.org. We welcome to the studio from Roll Call, covering the United States Congress, Jennifer Shutt. Hello, Jennifer. Nice to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Uh, And it is the morning after St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) Did you celebrate? I did not celebrate. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's almost unpatriotic, right? Peter, he's got such a hangover today. Look, look. I always (laughs) say St. Patrick's Day is amateur hour. Uh, I, I, there was a moment where I almost went out to dinner last night, and I thought to myself, what am I thinking? Going out to dinner anywhere that serves booze is going to be a disaster. Yeah. Well, Donald, Trump, out on Donald Trump had some nice things to say about the Irish yesterday. Um, or, well, it was, this guess, was last Friday. Week. This was last week. Because yeah. they do the celebration early, uh, uh, they which do. is tradition. It's a tradition. The prime minister comes over, the T-Sack, right? And they have the lunch at the Congress and everything, but... Uh, Donald Trump, um, I'm not sure this was very complimentary about the Irish. But I know many Irish people, and they are inspiring. They're sharp, they're smart, they're great, and they are brutal enemies, right? <laughs> so you have to keep them as your friend. Always keep them as your friend. You don't want to fight with the Irish. It's too tough. Too, it's too bloody. What oh, on whoa, earth? Whoa, too bloody. <laughs> Uh, the troubles, Donald. Yes, the troubles. Uh, okay, so we've been at it, uh, Jennifer, here for about a half an hour and um, <laughs> stirring up some comments. Yes, indeed. Some comments on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. We talked about the uh, national emergency declaration vote in the Senate. Peter on Twitter says uh, these people didn't vote for the resolution because they believe in the Constitution. They wanted to look good because they knew it was going to be vetoed no matter how they voted. Uh, that's 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 fair, I think. Fair. Uh, we also talked still. I'm, I, I salute those who voted the right way. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, we also talked about how Donald Trump went to church over the weekend. Tom says, "Oh my God, Trump goes to church." Uh, and Louis says, "And yet lightning didn't strike the church when he entered." <laughs> Not that we know of. Uh, if you have a comment on any topic at any time, find us on Twitter at BP Show. By the way, the other. I'm sorry, I'm obsessed with St. Patrick's Day. I didn't celebrate it either, by the way. But um, in Chicago, they still dye the Chicago River yeah. green. Did you yeah. see that? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 pretty striking, pretty beautiful, actually, from a, from the air. Uh, yeah. But they put this. They have this stuff that they use, which 
is environmentally okay. Okay, I have to say something because <laughs> they I, say, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 they say. <laughs> right. So I, I I know that they dye it green, and I and this this year I saw like a time lapse photo or video uh, from way above the river to watch right. them dye yeah. it, and the uh, radioactive color. <laughs> Of the green dye right. that they put in the river does not look like any color that occurs in Mm-mm. nature. No, no. It's such a bright green. Yeah. I don't know. But it's fascinating because they have these little boats that sort of go up yeah. and down. And it's over the course of several hours that they just sort of go up and down the river just dumping this dye in. I don't trust it, man. <laughs> I wouldn't swim in it. I mean, I'm not Alex Jones, <laughs> but I could see, I could totally see like an Alex Jones clear. They're putting this dye in the water to make the frogs gay. But then I want how yeah, and then I wonder what happens. Does it just go out into the lake and then disappear? Or I don't. Does the lake turn green? I don't know. That's I don't. Many don't questions. I want to know. I don't, I don't think I want to know. Okay, let's get down to some serious stuff here, Jennifer. So um, we had two big resolutions passed last week. Um, the first was the one, of course, that we um, that to override Donald Trump's emergency declaration. Passed the House easily. Um, I'm sure. Had he been able to, Mitch McConnell would not have allowed to vote on this resolution, right? It's likely he wouldn't have wanted to put his members in this position. Yeah. Um, even though he originally said, we don't need an emergency declaration, right? That was before the president issued it. Yeah. yeah. So they had to have a vote. And there were 47 Democrats and they did it four Republicans. They ended up getting 12. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was interested. We read the pardon me, the list earlier of those Republicans who voted for the resolution, meaning for, I would call it for the Constitution, somebody could say, against the president, right? Well, it's not necessarily against the president. One of the things that we heard from a lot of Republican lawmakers leading up to this is that this was a constitutional issue for them. Right. This is about Article but 1, I think who they controls were right. government spending. Yeah, right. I mean, Lamar Alexander, right? Senior appropriator. No, no radical leftist. That was <laughs> his position, right? Yeah. This is our, the Constitution gives us this responsibility, and this, this re, the, the president's action undermines that. So right. he said it was important for the, for the Senate, for the future of the Senate, right, and the Congress to stand up and vote on this. Well, so I'm, I'm surprised there were only 12. I think there could have been more if his veto wasn't a certainty. I think votes could have changed in different directions. Um, But I think everyone kind of, as soon as the House announced that this was going to be the plan, that they were going to do this resolution of disapproval, I think everyone kind of knew how this was going to play out. We knew it was going to pass the House. We knew it wasn't going to get two-thirds there to be veto-proof. We were pretty confident that it was going to pass the Senate, and we knew that Trump would veto it. So everyone kind of knew where the cards were going to fall. And so this was something, especially in the Senate, of people needing to take a stand on kind of their principles, if you will. Okay, so one of the uh, uh, going into the vote, um, there were only four senators, Republicans, who had made their position clear. Uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski um, and um, Rand Paul and Tom Tillis. Who, of course, surprised us all with that last-minute floor speech. What happened to him? I'm not entirely sure. There's been some reporting that there was talk of a primary in his state, of course. 
Mark Meadows, the the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, is from North Carolina as well, as is Mark Walker, who is mm-hmm. chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Those are both two prominent Republicans who could have tried to primary him. There was some talk um, on and off the Hill that, that, that he was being told that if he voted for the resolution of disapproval that he would have gotten a primary challenge. He's kind of brushed some of that off, saying there's always a chance of that. Um, but his last-minute floor speech did take a decent amount of us by surprise. He's up in 2020. Yes. So uh, he caved, basically, <laughs> it seems. And the uh, another one, um, we thought that uh, here on the show that, Peter, that Rand Paul, who was before vowed he's going to do a tough vote against the administration, and then caved at the last minute. That Rand Paul might be one that caved, but he he voted for the resolution. Ben Sass of Nebraska has been one of the most outspoken critics of Donald Trump, and yet he voted for it. I mean, voted. I'm sorry, with the president yeah. against the resolution. It's yeah. Getting into the language of this gets complicated. Right. Right. <laughs> you have to really think yourself through it. You're for the resolution. You're for the Constitution. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. Right. Okay, but. What happened to Ben Sass? I'm not entirely sure. I was tracking. He's up in 2022, right? Is he? Okay. I'd yeah. have to double check that because um, yeah. I mostly track the appropriators. But yeah, he's one of the ones who voted to stay with the president. I think a lot of them realized that in the end, it wasn't really like if we were getting closer to 67 in the Senate, I think a lot of people may have cast their votes differently. But I think everyone kind of knew all along that getting to two thirds in the House wasn't going to be a possibility. And in the Senate, it was extremely unlikely. So I think a lot of people kind of stepped back, thought, okay, we need to continue. Republicans especially thought we need to keep working with this president. We need to try to keep this good relationship going because we're in another appropriations process. They're supposed to be passing 12 additional spending bills by September 30th this year. Mm. It's an ongoing process. There's other legislative goals that Senate Republicans have. There's obviously judicial and executive nominations. So I think a lot of them kind of decided behind the scenes that it just wasn't worth it to break with him on this. Uh, uh, so just to um, just so that our viewers and listeners understand, you mentioned 67. The significance of 67 <laughs> is? It's two thirds. It's the number of senators you need to override a veto. Right. Will there even be a vote to override the veto? We know that the House is going to do that, and I don't believe that's privileged in the Senate. I'd need to double check that. Um, so I don't think the Senate has to take up that veto override. But there are not sixty. There are not sixty-seven yeah. votes in the Senate, and there, I don't believe there's two-thirds in the House either. No, you'd need a lot of Republicans. Yeah, for that you're too. not going to get them. So. Right. So, but they probably will go through the motions. Now, the other resolution was a resolution that the Mueller report should be made. Public. Right. Right. How did that fare? 420 to zero in the House. <laughs> That's good. amazing. Yes. Yeah. Well, these close votes, man. There's <laughs> finger. Everyone wants nail public. Time. Everyone wants to know what he's saying. And so that's. But that's significant be... that the Republicans and Democrats, right? Well, yes, except for Senator Lindsey Graham, sort of. So they tried to bring no, this but, up in the in the Senate after the House. But I mean, in the House, him. just in the House. I was looking at that. Just about every Republican and every Democrat. I mean, there's a handful, I guess, who voted against it, right? Or what? No, it, it couldn't, was 420 couldn't have been. Four twenty zero. So there are people some who were absences not, some and absences. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. What am I saying? I mean, unanimous to release this report, which can what also be can also be seen as a rebuke to President Trump. 
Well, depending on your politics. I mean, there are several Republicans who don't think the Mueller report is going to include anything scandalous, anything indicating ties to Russia or campaign collusion or anything like that. So that's why some of the Republicans want this released publicly right. is because they think it's going to... Well, will this resolution now go to the Senate? It has, has already... It? it has gone to the Senate. Uh-huh. Senate um, Democratic leader Chuck Schumer tried to bring it up last Thursday for a vote, and Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, objected to that because he wants other investigations. Which means... It, it's done. It, it won't yeah, come. there are other avenues that you could try to bring it up, but I think it's mostly just not going to happen in the Senate. Right, right. Um, uh, so, I mean, we'll we'll see. What Donald Trump's response was there shouldn't be any report at all, right? Well, I can't remember the exact language of his tweet over the weekend, but he said something along the lines of like, "I told House Republicans to vote for it" or something like that. <laughs> so he like, ta- gave them the okay so to vote for it taking, to be released publicly. T- taking taking credit for the unanimous vote. I think yeah, so, yeah. Right. Um, you've been doing a lot of reporting also, Jennifer Shett with us from Roll Call, rollcall.com, uh, on the emergence of pot as a unifying issue. Uh, it's interesting. The New York Times has a whole page this morning. Are we still talking uh, about the 420 to nothing vote? We're not. It's okay, all right, all right. 420, the 420 thing perked my ears up. Uh, uh, this entire full page in the New York Times. 2020 Democrats find common cause in pot. Um, so let's start on the on the 20, among the 2020 Democrats first before we get to Congress. Um, basically, they're all supporting... Full legalization. Full legalization. Yeah. And a lot of them are talking much more candidly, much more practically about their their experiences with marijuana. Um, I think we've seen Kamala Harris. No. <laughs> You're telling me that Beto O'Rourke smoked pot? I don't know. I'd have to go back and see if Beto has talked about that oh. yet. I mean. He has. He uh, has, by the way. He has. I mean, come on. That's, I would take that for granted. I mean, does the Pope wear a funny hat? I mean, yeah. it's like keeping track of all the Democrats in the primary at this point. Of course. Right. Said that they've but of all of them, I would say Beto certainly did. And Kamala Harris is Yeah, and then Bernie Sanders said he did, but he didn't like it or something. So I think it's uh I, I think it'd be easier, more fun actually, to think about the ones who have not smoked pot. Kirsten Gillibrand never smoked pot. I believe that. Cory Booker, he yeah, Cory Booker did. You think so? Hmm. Corey? I don't know, man. Newark. I could see, I could see him never. Try, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You saw that outfit he was wearing. It's it's from a couple years ago. Like it does not look like the outfit that someone who's ever smoked pot. Would Here's wear. now. I'm, I'm now. I'm in this. Joe Biden. Hmm. Probably not. Probably not. Right. I bet he would now. <laughs> Under the right circumstances. <laughs> um. Who are we missing? Let's see. Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper was against it. He was against pot. Now he's changed his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good. It's good. It's, he's, a, he's a capitalist, even though he won't say it. <laughs> it's good for his... uh, Okay. But, you know, we talk about he's how- He's Buttigieg? <laughs> Absolutely. I'd say definitely. Yeah. It's funny. You know, we talk about how quickly <laughs> everything has changed okay. with this, right? And, you know, uh, it was just last year, our oh. 420 show was coming up, our annual 420 show. Whoa. Yeah. Last year, uh, where we passed a joint around the studio, and we had someone that did dabs on air. Mm-hmm. We didn't do dabs. 
Somebody else. Somebody you else did. See, you didn't realize that you started here, Jennifer. But um, Jen, you're welcome to come back for the 420 <laughs> show. By the way, <laughs> on one condition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you got to get high with us. Yeah, you got to. You have to. You have to partake. But now, so the 2020 campaign. That you know, and it is interesting because I remember a few years ago, I was raising the question about there were two issues that were kind of making great progress. Which one was going to get to the finish line first? Same-sex marriage or legalization of pot? Obviously, marriage equality took off, right, with the help of the Supreme Court. But there are, I, I lose track of the number, you know, a dozen states now maybe that. I think 33 with comprehensive medical marijuana programs and 10 yeah, with recreational. 10 with recreational, yeah. So let's t- let's now look at the Congress. Will Will this result in federal legislation to make uh, recreational marijuana legal in all 50 states? Is that what people are talking about? Or it's There's so many bills that have been introduced already this Congress and that we're expecting members to introduce as the months go on. Some of them would deschedule marijuana, which would essentially legalize it. I know Cory Booker has a piece of legislation that's cross-filed with Congresswoman Barbara Lee um, that would do, It's I believe it's technically referred to as there's restorative justice in this. Um, and there's a lot of other elements. And while everyone sort of pays attention to the point that the, le- the legislation would legalize marijuana, there's a lot of other elements in the bill that would try to address, um, especially the sentencing, well, not necessarily sentencing discrepancies, but how people of color generally end up in prison mm-hmm. far more than mm-hmm. white people when white people use oh. marijuana at roughly the same rates. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of discussion about that in Congress right now. And so as more and more Democrats have gotten on board with supporting marijuana legalization, we've seen the conversation kind of evolve a little bit to where they're talking about, especially in these states with recreational medical marijuana, how do they ensure that dispensary licenses go to people of color? And so how do they ensure that people of color and people from these communities that have traditionally been impacted far more by the quote-unquote war on drugs and by marijuana laws, how do we make sure, how do they make sure that these people are kind of getting into this business? And of course, this is when we get into that banking um, gray area mm-hmm. that could be one of the places that lawmakers try to address this Congress. Technically, because marijuana is still illegal at the federal level, technically banks are not allowed to openly do business with these dispensaries and so that makes them all cash it's this huge problem it's a real problem in colorado and california uh across the board so but in terms of uh so far it's been up to the states yes either legislatively or by initiative or whatever it's predominantly been by initiative ballot initiative so is congress likely to say all 50 states you know, marijuana legal, recreational use. I don't think we're going to see that in the 116th Congress. The Republicans still control the Senate. Mitch McConnell is still in charge of that legislative agenda. And I just don't see him bringing up a full legalization bill. I could be really surprised by that next year heading into the 2020 elections, but I don't think I'm going to be. Uh, and and the, the real part of the problem, my understanding is, uh, that marijuana is still listed as a Schedule 1, isn't that what Yes, Schedule under the one. Controlled Substances Act. Right. Um, the DEA has marijuana classified in Schedule 1, which is supposed to be that most severe category. So who could change that? Is that Congress or the DEA? Could the DEA does it require an act of Congress? 
I don't believe it requires an act of Congress, but uh, most of the bills that would legalize marijuana address it through that right through that way. Right. Uh, it's be interesting to see now in the House because we've had some members of the House here who are members of the Cannabis Caucus. Cannabis Caucus. Who have right. you guys had in? What's that? Who have you guys had in? Well, Earl um, Blumenauer. Blumenauer for yeah. one. Yeah. For sure. I mean, he's, he didn't get high with us for the record. He's one of the founders of the uh, of the Cannabis Caucus. Uh, Sam Farr, Congressman Sam Farr, former Congressman Sam Farr from okay. California, yeah. is a member of the Cannabis Caucus. They have others, too. I'm trying to remember some of the others. Is Mark Pocan? I don't know if he's technically in it, but I yeah. think he's pretty vocal. Right, right. As co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, he was yeah. supportive of it. So they've had a, they've had a like a real impact mm-hmm. uh, on on this legislation. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, I guess it's sort of related. Uh, what's happening to the Green New Deal? I am not entirely sure what's happening with the Green New Deal. About Are we still talking it? about well, weed? That's majority. what I mean. It's sort of like a little <laughs> nice segue. There, right? Yeah. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has sort of squared this up for a vote in the Senate. It's not likely to get enough support to actually pass the Senate. Oh, no. I don't think Speaker Pelosi is going to bring it up in the House, at least not anytime soon. It seems like she really wants the select committee to do its work and to potentially present legislation for House Democrats to then debate. Um, we may see some incremental climate change legislation in the Senate, but beyond that, I don't see much sweeping reform. Uh, one thing that the House did do, and uh, Speaker Pelosi had identified as a number one priority, was H.R. 1. Yes. V- voting rights reform, campaign finance reform, ethics reform, all contained in a very sweeping document, H.R. 1. Which, And what happens to that now? It sits around in the Senate until the 117th Congress, and something could happen with it then, depending on who controls which chamber. Mitch McConnell, no vote. Yeah, no vote. Republican Senate. He's not bringing that up. Right. In fact, uh, I mean, he he's uh, called it like an attack on democracy, basically, I think. That's yeah, thing. I can't remember his exact quote, but he has a lot of, he does not agree with a lot of the provisions in H.R. 1. Um, and, uh, and, and we've seen before. So the question, we've discussed this here before on the show, is whether um, if you know it's not going to pass the Senate, whether the House should even bother passing these things. I would argue that the Democrats... Well, they're separate chambers. They're separate chambers. And the Democrats have a legislative agenda, and they they can't let their legislative agenda be determined by the whims of Mitch McConnell, right? Hey, Mitch, is it okay if we pass this, right? For example, another, another issue would be gun safety here in the wake of this massacre in New Zealand. Uh, the House did, I think they've already they've passed. They've done legislation already, yeah. Yeah, they've already passed two bills, I believe, mm-hmm. on background checks and, um, and and another related to background yeah. checks. Right. And we know those aren't going anywhere in the Senate. The Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham has said in the Senate that he wants to hold some hearings on gun violence, and it sounds like he wants to look a little bit at what I think is referred to sometimes as those red flag laws, sort of when someone is having... Um, issues with their mental health and may, may not be entirely safe for them to have weapons, have guns in their home. Um, how do you work within due process um, and the legal rights that individuals have under the Second Amendment? 
mm-hmm. to sort of see in what certain situations can you potentially take someone's guns away from them because they present a harm to themselves or others. And so that's going to be something that Senate Judiciary is getting into a little bit in the coming months. Um, but whether or not Mitch McConnell, who's up for re-election in 2020, really wants to bring some type of gun bill to the floor remains to be seen. Right. Um, now, if I'm correct, the House, the Congress is out this week, correct? Yeah, both right. chambers. May I ask why? It's the St. Patrick's Week recess. Everybody's <laughs> oh, got to oh, celebrate, okay. obviously. <laughs> duh. Well, duh. The only thing I could think of was uh, that St. Patrick's Day, they tie one on so badly they need a whole week to recover. I don't think that's technically it. These are officially referred <laughs> to as district work periods, and so oh, I think yeah. the way this sort of oh. rhythm... Um, that Congress tries to get into is three weeks in D.C., one week in their districts. All right. right. Thanks, Jennifer, for coming in. Roll call, call rollcall.com. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is March Madness. Get ready to fill out your brackets for the 2020 presidential candidates among the Democrats. That's this year's bracket, and um, there may not be enough room in your bracket to list them all. Hey, great to see you today. What do you say? Monday, March 18, The Bill Press Show. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us all across this great land of ours on the radio, on television, and online. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day. Good to see you back. I hope you had a great weekend. And uh, we want a little shout-out to Danielle Gibbs-Leger from uh, the Center for American Progress, for filling in on Friday with the help of uh, Peter and Ray. All reports are that she did a great job. We'll be invited back. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, and we need some help getting through uh, this first half hour for sure. We got it. And the person of Larry Cohen, who is the chair of the board of Our Revolution, uh, the great organization founded by Senator Bernie Sanders after the uh, 2016 presidential campaign. Still going strong, thanks to you, Larry. How are you doing? Great good, to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for all your great work. And now you're uh, out there on the campaign trail again, huh? Well, still building our revolution. Uh, and, yes, helping Bernie. Yeah. All right. And we got so lots and lots to talk about. You have lots of questions for uh, for um, for Larry, and we'll get them from you and your comments. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. 
We will jump right into 2020, but first... This is the Full sure, Court Press. All righty, just a couple yeah. of other stories making news. Well, I think it's safe to say that Beto O'Rourke did not have a very great rollout for his presidential campaign. A lot of gaffes, a lot of problems. And he said over the weekend he was not going to release his fundraising totals for the first 24 hours. But... Well, that has changed. Yeah. He has released his fundraising totals. He has raised $6.1 million in the first 24 hours in online donations. That makes it the biggest one-day total for any presidential candidate. Bernie Sanders previously had that at $5.9 million. Beto is at $6.1. Pretty interesting. We put up some stuff on Twitter about this at BP Show, at BP Show, if you want to go and uh, get your comments on that. I just saw that break on CNN. It just, yeah, yeah. CNN is the first one to report. Right, yeah. Just putting it out there. If I have a chance to uh, talk about that with Larry yeah. here, just a second here. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, also, you mentioned earlier, it is March Madness season. Like yesterday was yes. the NCAA selection <laughs> show. And the, let's just leave it at this. The four number one seeds, Duke, Virginia, North Carolina, and Gonzaga. So four very, very, very strong teams. Duke, of course, is entering the tournament again as the favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and have you heard about this new trend called the solo moon? The what? The solo moon. A solo moon. No. This is apparently a new trend. A couple of different people have written about this, but people will get married and then they take vacations oh, by I'm themselves. Sorry. I did see about this. Right. Solo moon. I, yeah, solo right. moon. So, obviously, this is different than a honeymoon where you get married and then you go on a trip together. Now, it's saying you go on a, you get married and then you go on a trip without your spouse that you just married. But, but it's a spouse. They go in different directions. Totally different directions. Yeah. I saw one guy went off with his buddies on some, yeah. I don't know, hiking thing or something. And sure. She went to, I don't know, Italy or something. Yeah. I mean, it sort of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? That was my reaction. I mean, there are a lot of explanations for this. And, you know, you uh, the times have changed. Dating and marriage and all that have changed over the years. I get that. But it is sort of a time to, you know, bond right after your wedding. But apparently people aren't as interested in that as they used to be. I'm not saying that this is taking over and this is like a whole new thing. But there, this is a trend that some people are talking about. A solo uh, mood. Uh, yeah, I... I don't think it bodes well. Yeah. Uh, for, for a long married I do. life. Give me the hell away from you. <laughs> this is the Bill Press Show. New Zealand vows to take action on automatic weapons. They did so one day after the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand. We have been 15 years since our ban on automatic weapons expired and have done absolutely nothing. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we go on a Monday, Monday, March 18. Good to see you today. It is the Bill Press Show, of course, and you are part of it. It's good to see you as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We join you on the radio, of course, on the great WCPT out in Chicago. Uh, I guess the Chicago River is back to being blue now and no longer <laughs> green. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it takes more than a day. 
for the color to disappear. Uh, and we're looking at you, of course, um, or joining you on. Uh, where was I? Okay, we're online or radio or television, whichever one I missed. Good to see you on all three here. And good to welcome to the studio Larry Cohen, who um, we first knew as a head of the Communication Workers of America, yep. and now uh, in the uh, very important position of chairman of the board of Our Revolution. You know Our Revolution. You should be a member if you're not, ourrevolution.com, uh, the great grassroots organization, progressive grassroots organization formed by Senator Bernie Sanders after the 2016 campaign. Larry, you've been part of it from the very beginning. Yeah, since... And it's since, formation. Uh, yeah, since the beginning of the Bernie campaign, which you were also a part of. Right. And uh, for me, from the beginning, it was about a movement, not just about Bernie, as wonderful as he is, and that's what we've continued to do. I mean, people forget, and you and I remember very early <laughs> on, what Bernie talked about was building a movement. Yeah, he didn't yeah. expect to be president, and then it caught fire. Uh, and he talk, talked about raising progressive issues and making sure they were very central to uh, the 2016 presidential campaign. you got to say, mission accomplished. Absolutely. Right? Bernie's amazing in that way. Those issues which were called impractical now are embraced by most Democrats, not not by Republicans. And he he makes that point as he goes around. Yes, he know. does. He's very proud of that. Three years ago, <laughs> they said... Medicare for all, they thought it was a crazy idea. <laughs> and now... It's every, mainstream. Everybody in some sense, right? Yeah. I mean, there are variations on a theme. Yep. But everybody's for Medicare for all. Yeah, in some sense. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they don't go as but, far maybe as Bernie you, does, but... Yeah, that's right. But But they're there. Um, so I want to talk about some of those ideas. Well, let's come back to uh, what uh, we just learned here at the top of the hour. CNN just broke the news. Right. That So Beto O'Rourke announced, um, when was it Thursday or Friday, and um, he just released his grassroots donations for that first 24 hours, $6.1 million, which actually barely but does surpass what Bernie got in the first 24 hours, which was $5.9 million. So um, does Beto take the fire away from Bernie? No, I think he's a different kind of candidate. I, th I think it's a good thing in the sense that he's clearly, you know, in opposition to Trump, and it shows grassroots support from a uh, largely from a very different direction. I mean, he's much more, uh, you know, market capitalism kind of guy. That's how I knew him in the Congress, anyway. Yeah, um, and uh, but is. Is there any, I guess, people, I got a call from a reporter the other day yeah. uh, asking whether I felt that Beto was a, was a threat to Bernie Sanders just because he's younger yeah, and and got a great grassroots organization, obviously, and support yep. uh, small donors nationwide. Do, yeah, which to his credit, he deserves, you know, in the race against Ted Cruz, he built that. So right. I, I, would, I would applaud, you know, that and what he's done in terms of that. I think it... In, in the final analysis, it's a different approach to the presidency and a different approach to beating Bernie. So it would be more overlap uh, Joe Biden, except for the age. So Biden and Bernie, same age. Beto, 30 years younger, to his credit. Lots of energy, uh, lots of good emotion. But but on the issues that you were talking about earlier, yeah. Beto and Biden are much more aligned than where Bernie would be. It's very interesting. My response to the reporter was, that I thought it was more of a threat to Joe Biden yeah. than to Bernie Sanders. Yeah, that on, on the issues, for sure. On the issues, 
yeah. he, he, they identify more or less on the issues, and he's younger than Joe. So, like, one could say, if you got better, why do you need Joe, right? <laughs> yeah, Joe. if Joe runs, Joe would say, look at the experience I've had. That's what he's going to use as his main main so-called Trump card. Right. You know, I never heard of Beto until he ran against uh, Ted Cruz. But as head of the e- uh, CWA, yeah. you had to deal with him when he was a member of Congress. Yep. What, so where was he politically uh, on the spectrum of progressive issues when he was a member of Congress? Uh, I wouldn't have put him on the spectrum of progressive issues. I mean, including when he was on the city council in El Paso. Hmm. I didn't know him then, but I learned yeah, about him. Right. Uh, the big, the big uh, issue I had and we had with him was on fast tracking the TPP. He was one of only twenty-seven Democrats in the House to vote uh, with virtually all the Republicans to fast track the TPP. It was fast tracked by three votes. We hmm. lost that by three votes. We had a huge campaign. CWA is very big in El Paso, but it's not just CWA. I was helping to coordinate you know, right. non-labor as well. We could not move him. To his credit, he was happy to meet. We had repeated meetings, not with me, but with people in El Paso, huge numbers. Couldn't move him. And it's not just a fluke issue. I mean, he is a believer in market capitalism that it works. Whereas we would say, you know, capitalism produces enormous inequality. It's great in terms of innovation, but you need to regulate it. And the TPP was a disaster, one of the worst aspects of President Obama's eight years. Uh, And there was Beto right there for it. Uh, he also, I saw, um, I, and I believe, sir, I haven't had a chance to double check, he voted against Obamacare? I was not aware of that. Yeah. Uh, I want to double check that. Yeah, but that's I, definitely worth knowing. Right. Um, at one point he voted against, I, I, these are notes from, a, I just was reading, I didn't look at the source here, but I was reading over the weekend, um, voted at one point against uh, Nancy Pelosi to be the Democratic leader. Yeah. Um and Who also, I call best speaker ever, by the way. I actually researched that in 2007 for my own good as president of CWA. Yeah. And we have welcomed her ever since as best speaker ever. Uh, let's talk more about that. And yeah. also, be- back to Beto, um, he voted to raise the eligibility age for Social Security. Um, yeah, well, that's disastrous. Right. So, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, all we've heard about Beto is um, he uses his hands a lot, right? Yeah, so do I, by the way. Bernie is really good with his hands. By the way, so is <laughs> Donald Trump. Of all people, Uh-oh. of all people, right? Peter, do we have that little clip? Here's Donald Trump talking about Beto. Well, I think he's got a lot of hand movement. I've never seen so much hand movement. I said, is he crazy or is that just the way he acts? <laughs> if you don't know Donald Trump and his hand movements, I don't know. Have you, have you seen the, the video of Donald Trump with the accordion? No. After you leave here, just Google Donald okay. Trump accordion. I will. Somebody took Donald Trump giving speeches the way he moves his hands, and they put an accordion in his hands. Oh, that's so funny. And, and it, it really works that's because awesome. he's always gone like this, right, yeah. Donald Trump? So of all people to criticize, Beto. I think but, Beto does have really good emotion. and He, he does. He connects no. with young people, and yeah. that way he overlaps with Bernie. He definitely right. can connect with young people. Yeah. But, you know, it's the emotion and the substance isn't clear at all. And you run for president, that's going to matter. Right. So of of all the – how is it different this time? Um, so you're, you're ahead of the revolution or the – our revolution. That's the organization. That's not the campaign. But just to be clear, you're supporting Bernie for president for twenty. Yeah, our revolution is supporting him. We did right. a, a poll of our members and, and launched this thing called Run Bernie Run. And I'm not saying that was decisive for him. He had many different factors, but overwhelmingly, right. our our folks 
uh, wanted him to run and are thrilled that he's running. What is the difference for Bernie, 26, how do you view 2016, 2020 from 2016? Yeah, big, big difference. He's got to win. I mean, 2016 was a message campaign, especially initially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in this case, uh, as I've said to him, and he definitely agrees, it's not any great insight. This is in it to win it. Um, His ability to move things would be at least as good if he wasn't running. This isn't about moving the agenda. This is about being president of the United States, winning the nomination, winning the presidency, beating Trump, and then most importantly, figuring out how do we govern in this country. So as great as President Obama was as an, as an individual and his character, we got almost nothing done from a progressive standpoint. We got to look ahead here. How would we govern? What can we actually do? And he's tried to focus on all three of those things. Right. Uh, the other And the big difference, too, is in 2016, right, the progressive field was Bernie, right? That's right. Bernie versus Hillary. Now. Right. Much more complex. Uh, he doesn't have that lane all to himself. Right. Right. Elizabeth Warren is very similar in, on policy issues. And so, and then, you know, from there, there's lots of others that would say they're very progressive. Right. Um, does Bernie still have the base that he had in 2016? Yeah. Amazingly, I would say he has, you know, literally 90% of it, which is shocking. And. And why do I say it's shocking? Because you you could have easily 15 to 20 candidates. If he has 90 percent of that base, he will win the nomination, especially given the rule changes that, Mm -hmm. you know, I was proud to be involved in with the Democratic Party. No superdelegates voting on the first ballot means you need 2,100 delegates to win. There is a there is a definite path for Bernie to get 2,100 delegates. Right. Uh, And ironically, again, uh, we alluded to this earlier. The issues that, that Bernie wanted to raise, whether it's $15 minimum wage or Medicare for all or free college tuition, I mean, basically, that's become the Democratic platform. That's the Democratic agenda on which, with very small variations or maybe not so small, every <laughs> Democrat is running on. Yeah, I still think, you know, Bernie's, <coughs> excuse me, his message goes further. Mm-hmm. But as you say, it's shifted very much from Bernie versus uh, Secretary Clinton to where the most of these candidates are now. Uh, Kamala Harris would be another one I forgot to mention. Yeah. She would be very similar on many of these issues. Right. Um, does that, so do you think that because he's the one who raised the issues and he's the one who was out there in 2016 before anybody else, that therefore Bernie should have a um, sort of a, a, an advantage or be? I think it is an advantage because there's an authenticity question about you know people moving to where they think the center is versus the center of the Democratic Party versus mm. moving the center. And yeah. I think I think the, the thing about um, our revolution members and many other activists uh, in other organizations is he gets he really does get credit for moving the center in a way that no one else uh, that I know of has done in decades. And when Bernie talks about Medicare for all. Yes. What does he mean? Well, he and, actually and how means- does that differ from some of these other candidates? Yeah, well, he actually means that in the same way that I now have Medicare, that ev- that you would pull the age down, and y- it might be over two years, but we would pull the age down from 65 eligibility down to covering everybody, maybe cover children right away, and then within two years cover everybody. What's the advantage of that? The advantage of that is that even though we spend $3.5 trillion on health care, we spend 20% of it on administration. Medicare is 5 or 4% on administration. The VA system, another single-payer system, 4 or 5%. That saving of, of 
almost 15% on administration is worth six or $700 billion. So when people say, how are we going to pay for this? We're going to save money from what we're doing now. Also, pharmaceuticals, you know, they, caught, they charge whatever they want. We would be negotiating with them just like every other country does. How much are we going to pay? That's about $900 billion a year. That's the other place we save money. So instead of being on the defensive where Trump would like us to be, we would say to President Trump, uh, I rarely call him that, but um, <laughs> I choke on the words, worst president ever as opposed to best speaker ever. Um, $3.4 trillion is double the percentage of GDP, gross domestic product, spent in the U.S. on health care. And look at the mess we have mm-hmm. uh, to try to figure out what you owe or what it's going to cost or how are you going to pay for it. And the fear we have of long-term care, even the worst aspect that we must bring under Medicare for all. And people are older or their parents are older. They have to be impoverished to qualify for Medicaid, not Medicare, to deal with their last years of life. Richest country in the world. This is what we do. Bernie's been on this for decades. Right. Um, what happens to private insurance companies under his plan? They need transition uh, help. Not so much. I don't care about the shareholders, but the people who work there. There would definitely be a diminishing role. Yes, supplemental insurance, but we shouldn't play games with it. It's the same with fossil fuel. You need a transition plan, a real one, not just the words for workers involved with fossil fuel if you're going to deal with climate change. Similarly, uh, for workers in these insurance companies, they'll need a transition. Uh, Which means the companies... Go out uh, extended of unemployment. We have it for trade adjustment assistance. No, right. the companies won't go out of business, but They'll they won't sell. be able to sell that, that same kind of basic health insurance because we'll be getting it through Medicare. They'll, whatever other products that they... Yeah, including supplemental health care, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. Yeah. Right, right. But I mean, we're not here. You know, we It's like first things first, just like on climate change. So which of the um, Democratic candidates uh, do you consider to be the the most serious challenge to Bernie Sanders? Well, if, if Vice President Biden runs, he's definitely going to jump out there initially. So he would be the most serious challenge. As we talked about earlier, there are progressive candidates, particularly Harris and uh, Elizabeth Warren. Warren. Yeah. But, I, you know, Bernie would say about Elizabeth Warren, for sure, you know, we're not going to have much to say against each other at all. Uh, voting is proportional in our party. It's not winner take all. And so, um, you know, they're additive in terms of building that progressive base in the party. There was a criticism before you and I remember um, in 2016 uh, that Bernie was, again, the message candidate, did not have the organization or the team uh, capable of running a successful, heavy-duty, right, presidential campaign. Yeah, the structure is much better. The four co-chairs... Um, you know, Nina uh, Turner, who was the president of our revolution, she's now on a leave. Um, uh, Representative Ro Khanna, uh, Ice Cream Ben, as I call him, from Ben and Jerry's, Ben Cohen. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, not a brother of mine, except he is a brother in, this, in the campaign. And Mayor uh, Ruiz from uh, San Juan. So I think that structure's key. Um, Faiz, uh, Faz Shakir, uh, who was previously political director of the ACLU, is campaign chair. Um, uh, Analilia Mejia, political director, lots more to the structure, lots more diversity. Um, and the di- big difference is the fundraising. Mm-hmm. And uh, so from the beginning, the ability to hire people across the country, not just sort of move from Iowa and New Hampshire and then try to get in place after doing well. That's what happened in 2016. Right. It wasn't staffed until after those basically 
somewhat in, in, in South Carolina and Nevada. All the rest got thrown together you know, in March of 2016. Did Bernie succeed in 2016 by, of doing away with age as a significant issue? I mean, he will be the oldest, if, president, the oldest ever. president ever, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here's what I say. Number one, let's have a foot race or a walking contest <laughs> with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And having walked with Bernie many, many, many times and being a runner still myself, that would not be a close call. And so whether it's a walking contest or comparative exams, so Bernie Donald, is in way better shape than Donald Trump. But Donald so, Trump would need a golf cart. you know. Yes, could, Donald Trump you know. would need a golf cart. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think it's fair to say Bernie would say it's fair to say that's a, that is a significant criticism. And so for me, you add it all together. But again, if it's criticism of Bernie Sanders, it should be criticism uh, much before that of, of Donald Trump. Right. Um, how confident do you think that Democrats should be about beating Donald Trump in 2020? I have a feeling Not sometimes. Not overconfident. Yeah, that's the problem that I that I yeah. feel. Some people. Yeah, we have an electoral system. Hillary Clinton Clinton beat him, except she didn't win the White House. She won by three million votes. In any other country, she'd be president. We tend to always forget it. We look at polls. We look at popularity. It's state by state. And so to go back to, uh, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida, you know, maybe can be in play. But, I mean, that's what it's going to come down to. I mean, I think most of these candidates will win the states that Secretary Clinton won. I don't see President Trump, uh, I said it again, picking up any of those states. But, um you know, we've got to be able to win those states. I think the good news was Michigan, particularly Michigan right. and Wisconsin, in the 2018 election showed real change. Right. I mean, the states that were where, where Donald Trump uh, scored, right, in 2016, you just mentioned a few of them. If you look at Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, what else? Ohio, I guess. I'm not Ohio, sure Ohio won by a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but those, certainly, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania are not solidly in Don Donald Trump territory That's anymore. Right. Particularly right. Michigan and Wisconsin. I think Pennsylvania, yeah. we have a lot of work to do. Older voters, a lot to do there. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he's he's certainly vulnerable, beatable, but yeah. it's not going to be automatic. And I think Democrats could get a little too Yeah, and you heard in his State of the Union, his attack on Bernie and others is going to be Democrats are socialists. They're just like Venezuela. You want yeah. to bring Venezuela here, mm -hmm. vote for Democrats. Uh, that's that, That's what I want to get to you next. Because I'm dealing with this all the time. I hear it, and I, it, 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 it's like a meme that the media has picked up, is that the Democratic Party has become, and this is what they're going to use, right? Yes. The Socialist Party. By the way, if they nominate the most centrist of Democrats, maybe even an Amy Klobuchar, they're going to attack her as a socialist. That's right. right. There's no doubt about it. So Same if they attack. Decide, no, no matter who it is, they're going to, whether it's Bernie or her, right, it's going to be socialist. What do you think of Democrats... What do you tell Democrats who, and there are some Democrats who are, I, Stuart Eisenstadt has a piece on Politico this morning about, you know, Democrats going too far to the left. They're going to blow it, right? Yeah. Really? Well, I mean, I, again, for What's us. What's your response? Well, for us, it's about being for something, you know, for change. And I, I would argue that Secretary Clinton lost the Electoral College vote. Again, she won the popular vote overwhelmingly, largely because it was like an empty cup. Continuing Obama for eight more years was not appealing to working class Americans. And so many didn't participate and didn't vote. And, and some minorities over and voted for Donald Trump and made a difference in the states we just talked about. So I think we have to be for change, 
for something. This level of economic inequality is not acceptable. And more importantly, this kind of health care is not acceptable. Being The student debt is not acceptable. Uh, the, the wage levels in this country are not acceptable. So I would say to, in all due respect to those Democrats, hey, it's time for change. And for many of us, that's what politics is about. It's about improving our country. It's not just about winning elections. Plus, I would add, if I can, that when you talk about then I always ask, okay, now what is it? What, what policies are you talking about that are too far left? Yeah, that's a fair Socialist, point. Right? Uh, let's see. We're talking about Medicare for all? Really? I mean, yeah. that's hardly that extreme, right? We're talking about a $15 minimum wage? Really? I mean, that's, right? You know, so... If you look at the policies, we're talking about doing something about climate change. Yeah. Even, before it's too late. Right. Before it's too late. Right. So when you look at these policies, and when you, when you, let's talk about a wealth tax or a tax of 70% or what it is on people on their income over $10 million a year. It pulls through the roof among the American people. And as you know, we had a much higher tax under President Eisenhower. Last I checked, the Republican. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. So that, so that I think that under, undermines the entire effort to, to brand it a socialist. Which, yeah. Well, uh, again, it's just a way to be on the attack, and they think it means enough to enough Americans they'll pick up votes. I mean, way. they called Barack Obama a socialist, right? Yeah, they're going to call Democrats socialists because they support programs for all of us, not just for a few of us. And that's what this is about, you know, for all of us, not just a few of us. So I saw that uh, Beto O'Rourke and Cory Booker over the weekend – said that they would put a woman on the ticket as vice president. Good idea. Has Bernie Sanders made the same pledge? I hope he will. Uh, I don't think he specifically has. I can tell you last time that's what he would have done. For the record, mm-hmm. by the way, he, he did say, he did address this and say that uh, when he, should he be the nominee, he will look at a person of color mm-hmm. and certainly someone who is younger. So he didn't say for sure I will put a, but he said that's that's something that he would have done the last time around and is important this time around. Yeah, last time around he was definitely headed towards a woman as his running mate. I mean, he didn't get close enough to winning the nomination to go further on that. Uh, the convention, Milwaukee, huh? Yeah, good choice. How- I, I think so, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, the people are worried that there are not enough hotels. I mean, they've dealt with that before. Right? Yeah. I mean, I remember <laughs> when we were in St. Paul, Peter, we were like, what, 25 miles away from Yeah, the- we had to stay <laughs> far away, man. Philadelphia, there were people 25 miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it happens all the time. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Uh, our hotel, when I was at CNN for the Philadelphia convention, the Republican convention, we were in Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah. Uh, which, so... Not that so, but they can deal with that hotel situation. Yeah. How's this convention going to be different? Well, so first of all, 715 superdelegates not voting on the first ballot. You know, I'm quite proud of that. I worked for that for a year and a half on the Unity Reform Commission. Um, so that's a huge change. Yeah. Um, so I think, the, you know, the, the platform. Part, the party poo balls will not dictate the yeah. candidate. Yeah, they will not vote unless there's a second uh, ballot, which there hasn't been since 1952 um, when Stevenson was nominated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think that's the biggest single thing that's different. I also think, as you've already said, the platform of the party, that was, I would say, the best platform ever for Democrats. 2016, this one will right. go further. Uh, there'll be a lot of focus on that. I can tell you our members in our revolution who will run for delegates, but also others, mm-hmm. um, will be definitely pushing uh, the health care to 
you know, Medicare for all, the trade policy, which stopped short last time, um, you know, free college at public universities, those issues, as you said, they're now mainstream. Are you, um, as a uh, supporter of Bernie and uh, uh, head of our revolution, uh, are you happy with what the DNC is doing in terms of the debates, presidential debates? Yeah, compared to the last time, great. Totally great. I give uh, Chairman Perez a lot of credit on a lot of these things. Milwaukee debates totally supported the changes in the party rules. Never would have happened without him. Right. I mean, we would have had 100 votes if it was, quote, the new uh, whatever you want to call us in the Democratic Party, although I've been there for a while. Uh, we, we would have had 100 votes. We had 300. He came out for reform. I mm-hmm. mean, he believed perceptions were critical and that we had to show younger voters they can be inside, not watching. Right. Uh, plus, on the debates, I agree with you. I think he's done a great job. There'll be, there are going to be more debates. They're going to be in, in prime time right. during the week. Not on people, Super Bowl. <laughs> exactly. Where people will be watching it. Uh, and they're going to have two nights back to back and mix up the candidates so not all the so-called yes. varsity candidates are on one night and then the JV on another night. Now it's going to be a good good mix, I think. And yeah. and um, and it'll it'll you know everybody will have a chance to see these people how how well they do on their feet and how well they and where they really stand on the issues. And starting that early in June, it's going to will help. Right, could, could help change how this all goes. All right, how many uh, how many uh, chapters now of our revolution? Uh, there's probably 640. I would say 250 are really amazing. I was in Sarasota on vacation last week. My friend who I was staying with, uh, they're members of, of the group there. I was stunned how amazing that group is in Sarasota. Wherever I go, that's what keeps me going, by the way, is these groups. It's nothing but these groups. The groups are incredible. Right. All over Maryland, Texas. And a lot of our Texas people are thrilled about Beto O'Rourke. They wanted him to run against Cornyn for the Senate, not against yeah. Bernie Sanders for the nomination. Right. Uh, so our revolution, there's a, there's a chapter or near you. If not, you can start one. Yep. Any go 10 to, members can start a chapter. There you go. Ourrevolution.com, the ultimate grassroots organization, ourrevolution.com. Board Chairman Larry Cohen. Thanks, Larry, so hey, much you're for coming awesome. in. Great, Great to, to be see here you. with you. You, you know, we got a lo- <laughs> we've been down a long road together and a lot more miles to go. I hope so. Yeah. And Ginger Gibson joins us next from uh, Reuters uh, to take a look at her reporting on 2020. Give us a quick break. We'll be right back. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. And here we go. On a Monday, March 18, the Bill Press Show, live from uh, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, brought to you today by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perone, a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families all across the land. Check out their website at ufcw.org and welcome to uh, our next guest in studio with us. Uh, Ginger Gibson is from Reuters, covering uh, the 2020 um, March Madness. Uh, And, uh, of course, Ginger coming to us uh, all the way from Gunning Bedford High School in Delaware City, Delaware. (laughs) Middle school. Middle Middle school school then. (laughs) That's right. It was a high school. Uh, And Bear, Delaware. Uh, So it's good good to see you, Ginger. Good to be here. Yeah. How about it? Um, So reported this morning that uh, Beto O'Rourke actually beat out Bernie Sanders 
in the fundraising department in the first 24 hours, $6.1 million. Bernie had $5.9 million, but just not too shabby either. Not so, not too shabby. So Beto's serious, huh? I mean, we knew that he had this ability to raise money on the Internet. We knew that he had built this national following of people who wanted to see him run, who were really impressed with him in Texas and wanted to see more of him. Um, what's really going to be, I think, a bit more telling is when we see those end of quarter numbers. I mean, Bernie Sanders will probably blow everyone out of the water. He will have had a head start on Beto O'Rourke, mm-hmm. which will allow him to, to have a little bit more time to do beyond the first day numbers. Um, but but you're right. I mean, Beto O'Rourke, for all the criticism he got uh, in his launch and, and sort of the fumbling of how he handled it, uh, did raise a bunch of money the first weekend. Right. Um, there is still the um, question, I think, uh, among a lot of Democrats about exactly what Beto O'Rourke stands for or you know where he is. He doesn't have a defined issue. Um, and he hasn't, I, I think, been very helpful in explaining where he stands on some of these issues. Here's just a little clip of him over the weekend saying, here's what uh, I want to do. Basically, uh, listen to everybody. Campaigning across the country, listening to everyone, not just to Democrats, to make sure how we find the consensus to accomplish this. That's all part of this. Mm-hmm. So where is he on the political spectrum? I th- as left of, as left uh, as Bernie or as middle as Hillary, uh, probably much closer to Hillary than Bernie. Uh, he was quite centrist in his time in Congress. Um, he broke from his party more than uh, many others, um, and he doesn't have a, a defined policy position. I mean, that's one of the things he's going to have to do here pretty quickly. Um, you can't win on charisma alone. Um, you know, the, I think it's incorrect to compare him to Barack Obama. People say, oh, well, Barack Obama was so charismatic. Well, Barack Obama was also had policy positions uh, and rolled them out. He was a policy nerd. Yes. Yes. Uh, a walk. Well, to, uh, yeah. To his credit. I to mean, his, right. he, he studied um, these issues like mad. Right. So, you know, we've seen really only Elizabeth Warren doing the sort of heavy lift policy paper rollouts at this point. Uh, she jumped right into them. Um, and and others are going to have to start following her if they want to try to prove they've got some policy chops. Right. Um, so the other big news over the weekend on the 2020 front um, was uh, the candidate, well, two candidates announced. One meant to announce, the other did not. Kirsten Gillibrand meant to announce. I, I thought she was already a candidate, um, but now she, she's she been in the exploratory phase and she's definitely in now. And as I think next weekend she's called uh, for a big crowd to come out at to, at Trump Tower. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting decision. Um, I understand that she's going to have to make a really robust argument. You know, she's the only one that sort of did the launch or the part launch and didn't get a bump. Uh, she's still not above one percent. Everybody else sort of got two, three, four, five. Yeah. Uh, she's yeah. still sort of stuck at one. Um, or less than one, uh, and she's going to have to do something to overcome that. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a stunt uh, going to Trump International Hotel in New York City to hold your your event. Uh, maybe it gets you some attention. Maybe it gets you some eyeballs. Uh, maybe it leaves you in the president's shadow, uh, and that's maybe not a place you want to be. What I wonder is, having been there, um, they're not going to close Fifth Avenue for her. No. Right? Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't imagine. Um, the president certainly has enough power, I think, to prevent that, although maybe de Blasio would do it just as, you know, poke him. But 
Uh, and then there's not enough room on the sidewalks. I'm just not sure how that's going. You know, to it's work. near Columbus Circle. They said so. No, it's not. No, they're doing it. The hotel. So not Trump Tower. Oh, the Trump other Trump Hotel, which is near Columbus Circle. So there is a little more space there. Um, in fact, I, I suspect the logistics is why she's not going to the Trump t- Tower. Yeah. Uh, but there is a hotel, a Trump International Hotel or near Columbus, Columbus Circle. Circle. Yeah. Um, Although I thought that they had taken the Trump name off of that. Maybe not. That. They may have taken the Trump name off of the bill outside of the building. Um, but oh, no, I know it's it still well. It's right across from CNN. Yes. Right there, yes. Trump right there. Uh, so the circle's got some space in it. I think there's some open space across the street at one point. Uh, she but may. The, there is the plaza. The entrance uh, to Central Park is right there. Right there. Too. So. Yeah. She she might okay. have some room over there um, to do it. Uh, so that I, I was not. Sh- They've not mm. put logistics out, but it, it's it's that uh, okay. area. Yeah. So the, she meant to announce the one who did not mean to announce, of course, uh, Joe Biden, a Democratic, uh, big Democratic dinner. Were you there? I was not there. It was in Dover. It was in Dover, I was right? So bombed. I missed it. Yeah, yeah. in Dover uh, Saturday night, uh, and he said, "What do you mean?" When they say, I'm not as progressive as these other candidates. I'm told I get criticized by the new left. I have the most progressive record of anybody running for the United Anybody who would run. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Crowd, of course, loves to hear that. He, he, uh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> anybody who would run. <laughs> What's he waiting for? Well, there's some logistical things. I mean, let's look at Beto O'Rourke, who announced that he was running for president without a campaign manager, okay, who's got events where they're cramming into coffee shops and he's climbing up on counters because they haven't figured out logistics. Uh, You don't want to launch your presidential campaign without a staff, uh, especially if you're Joe Biden, and the expectation is that you're going to hold some big rallies, you're going to go out on the road, you're going to have big staged events as part of your launch. Uh, I think Exhibit A as to why you want to wait for that is is right there. Um, so he is doing, we understand those things. We had been told for weeks and weeks uh, that his staff was beginning to put in place the infrastructure should he decide to run. I think in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that to a, he is likely to run and now they are putting all of that really in place. Um, you got to do some of that. Uh, it's a it's a dance. It's a game we play where we know that they're doing it and we wait um, and and they wait and they don't say running. They say could run and, and, and he messed it up. And look, I think also that's a, a great example of a concern that his staff has. I mean, I've talked to people who are in touch with his staff that say, a gaffe from Biden is almost inevitable. Uh, and the question is, is it something that he can shrug off and keep going? Or is it perceived as sexist or racist or um, not in tune with the sort of liberal wing of the party and it becomes detrimental to them? So would not be surprised that he starts his campaign off with a gaffe, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one that's really worried that he's going to keep making them. Right. And this was not a serious gaffe. It's no. kind of more or funny, I'm sure he laughed at it too. But uh, anyhow, he didn't. He, he wasn't there. Uh, to, uh, it would have been a good place to announce. You know, the the chair of the state party, who I know, I'm sure would have been quite pleased to have it there. And I'm sure we'll spend a long time telling people that he did announce <laughs> at his uh, at his dinner. The question I have about uh, Biden's candidacy is again. Let's go back to this grassroots money, where um, you know, Bern, well, uh, originally Kamala Harris, right? 
We were very impressed with the number she raised, then Bernie, of course, now Beto. Elizabeth Warren, too, I guess, is in the running there, right? But Joe doesn't – does Biden have that um, built-in base of grassroots support? I think Biden small dollar donation has some built-in grassroots support. I don't know how much of it's small dollar. I've tell you, I've traveled to three early states now: Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And everywhere I go, there's at least one person who tells me I'm waiting to see what Joe Biden does. There are people who are waiting for him. There are people who like him, um, and so he will start off. I mean, look at him in the poll numbers. Some of that same yeah. recognition, yeah, right. but he's it, he's not going to lose all of that out the out the gate, right? Um, so there is a, a pocket of people. Um, could he run a traditional campaign that's more big dollar donors um, and and voters who, you know, I, the Democratic Party is still trying to figure out, do small dollar donors a surrogate for a poll? Does that mean if you can get more money that you have more votes? Um, or can someone have more votes but not have as much small dollar donors? And, and I don't think anyone knows the answer to that yet. Right. I just don't know. I haven't seen where, like, certainly, and Larry Cohen was just here from Our Revolution, I mean, Bernie Sanders has kept his organization and his support base alive, and he starts out with a big advantage. So has Beto from his Senate race, right? Let's let's keep in mind one thing, though. Bernie Sanders has kept Bernie Sanders' operation alive for Bernie Sanders. And yeah. He hasn't kept it alive for many other people, right? Our revolution did not succeed particularly well at helping other candidates in the midterms. Uh, Bar- Joe Biden has been helping people run for office for decades. Um, and so we also need to remember that the organizing strength behind having lots of House members, governors, local party officials who feel indebted to you for the help that you've given produces something that um, that is intangible and, and is going to be a benefit to him as well. Um, Amy Klobuchar was on the, um, uh, I forget which of the Sunday shows um, yesterday, um, and the issue came up again about uh, her the treatment of her staff, which is an issue that has been dogging her. Um, She's been working on how she responds to it. Here's the latest. She's getting a little tighter, I think, on her response. One can always do better, and that means you want to be sure that you are listening to people. Um, if you know they felt uh, that something um, was unfair or they felt bad about something, but I still think that you have to demand good product. Uh, when you're out there on the world stage and dealing with people like Vladimir Putin, yeah, you want someone who's tough. You want someone that demands the answers and that's going to get things done. So, yeah, I'm tough on my staff, but I'll be tough on Putin, too. But I, I, is, is this going to be a major issue for her? I think she can put it to bed. You know, um, I think that she you're right. She's tightened her answer on this. I think the average voter assumes that they're all kind of terrible on this front <laughs> and that, um, of course, she was. Uh, I also am starting to hear more of a, is this line of questioning sexist um, from mm-hmm. voters? Um, I think the really big question is going to be how her opponents handle it. Um, you know, there's a big underlying discussion about how nasty and when does this field get nasty and what kind of nasty, right? So if candidates are saying candidate X supports Y policy and that's bad for you, I think most people will be okay. But what happens when one of her opponents starts running ads that says, Amy Klobuchar threw notebooks at people? So far, most of them have said they're not going to go there, right? I mean, they Bernie have. has said he's not going to run a negative campaign against anybody else. Um, Cory Booker's, or, you know, let's all love each other. That's sort of his message, right? Hickenlooper um, in the shower with a suit on says, I won't run a dirty ad. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, so it'd be, I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if it got. I would not be pers- surprised if it got personal. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, this is politics. This is the highest stakes politics, um, and and their super PACs still exist, and there's still a lot of money out there. Um, and I would not be surprised if we start seeing some personal attacks. Uh, by the way, it's refreshing. That, so this is sort of 2020 related, but at least I wanted to get it in. Which is, we talked a little bit earlier too that Donald Trump spent before he went to church Sunday morning. He spent Sunday morning. Uh, attacking John McCain in his tweets, a very unchristian kind of thing to do. I mean, rest in peace, right, as we say. R.I.P. John McCain. He won't let him rest in peace. Uh, He had to tweet out about the fact, in fact, Donald Trump's tweet was, it was indeed just proven in court papers, last in his class, John McCain, that sent the fake dossier to the FBI and media, hoping to have it printed before the election, bah, 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 bah. Uh, Our good friend, that this is what's so refreshing to to read a tweet not from Donald Trump our good friend Chris Liu just tweeting out Chris Liu frequent guest host here on the Bill Press show former deputy secretary of labor just tweeted out McCain attended a military academy that Trump couldn't get into he fought a war that Trump refused to fight and he did what any loyal American should do when presented information about foreign interference in elections. He gave it to the FBI. Good for Chris Lowe. Right. You know, I, I Megan McCain is is a, is a is a wonderful person, and my heart breaks for her that she felt she had to get up and defend her deceased father months after his death. Uh, but you know, she did, and I thought in a in a very telling statement. Uh, we read a little bit earlier there. Um, Peter? I'm just pulling up her tweet yeah. uh, because uh, she she had a lot of tweets from over the weekend. Uh, but she did tweet directly to Donald Trump, quoting his tweet and saying, No one will ever love you the way they loved my father. <laughs> I wish I had been given more Saturdays with him. Maybe spend yours with your family instead of obsessing over mine. Says Boom. It. Bingo. Says it there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's got it. Um, uh, he can't let go with that. He can, and, and I just want you to imagine, I'll bring it back to 2020 for a second. This is this is sort of anger he's still holding over 2016. Uh, the 2020 re-election yeah, campaign yeah. will be tweeted. Um, and so what happens when he starts live tweeting debates and he starts live tweeting candidate forums and um, Saturday morning is spent, maybe, maybe it's dead he's so distracted by uh, the dossier in Russia that he doesn't pay attention to Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, but but I highly doubt that. Well, it is interesting, as you point out, that in many ways Donald Trump cannot let go of 2016. He keeps talking about how well he did. He keeps lying about the number of electoral votes he got and the number of electoral votes Hillary Clinton got or didn't get, uh, about how many people voted illegally for her. He's got this obsession with John McCain. I mean, he keeps bringing it back, right, on and on. You know, and they say and that he can't almost accept the fact that he, he won. I mean, however he won, he won. I think that he has worried the entire time that if someone proves any of these things against him or realizes that, you know, that there is a popular vote in addition to an electoral college vote, that uh, it will delegitimize him, that he will no longer be president. He needs to hold on to that, that he still sort of feels like he's fighting to be the president. Um, and and there's a risk that he's going to lose that because he's not going to pay attention, you know, they're fighting the last war instead of the current one. He's not going to pay attention to his re-election campaign in a way that that helps them. 
Um, so we talked about Joe Biden. You're still convinced uh, that Biden does get in. It looks that way. I mean, I have to say it looks that way. Uh, the last time he hired staff and had people in place and then decides the last minute not to run. So the possibility always remains until someone says I'm in. Uh, but it looks like he's running. Yeah. Uh, and they say now early April. Early April, it looks okay. like. Uh, he won't be the last, right? We still know Steve well, Bullock in Montana. That was That's what was leading to my question about is he, would he be the last or is, if he comes in, is that less likely that some of these other wannabes get in? I doubt it. I doubt it. So you think? I, I think Steve that Bullock. The Bullock could still run. I mean, he's waiting on a legislative session to end so that he does his work in Montana. Um, I don't think that we see any of the other sort of Terry McAuliffe. Uh, Terry McAuliffe is a good question. I don't know about Terry McAuliffe. There, there. He seems to be an open question uh, at this point. Maybe he doesn't. Um, I, I don't think anyone drops out, right? I don't think we, like he doesn't clear the field in any way. Cory Gardner. Uh, no, he's, no a he's a Republican. Um, no, you're Michael, Bennett. Michael Bennett. Michael um, Bennett. I don't know about Michael Bennett. I, 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 I he would also um, has not done as much as sort of the initial uh, groundwork laying. Um, but look, like I think that we're really not going to see this field change in any substantive way until they all get on a debate stage together. Um, in June, when they start having to stand next to each other, when people be able start being able to draw contrast directly between the candidates, that's when the field is really going to have the potential. I, I think a lot of people are like that. I think a lot yeah. of Democrats right? uh, who maybe even were for Bernie Sanders in 2016 are kind of saying, let's just see how everybody handles themselves once we get to a debate, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that there are probably some candidates that I'm inclined to not vote for, and there are several candidates that I could absolutely see myself voting for. It's just a matter of who carries themselves the best and also who makes the case the best that I am the person that can beat Donald Trump. Right. There are, um, among the candidates, uh, again, we want to see how they do in the debate, of course, but the one that I hear that really gets pretty good marks for um, not a spectacular launch, but just for an impressive um, few appearances is Pete Buttigieg, um, particularly from his CNN town hall uh, out at South by Southwest. Yeah, and he's going to, it looks like, qualify for the debate. So mm -hmm. we know the Democrats are doing them a little different than Republicans. Mm -hmm. There is a qualification measure. He should meet that qualification measure. Um, the the question then is how he handles himself in that situation. Uh, but he is. A lot of people think he might be running for a VP nominee. Uh, he would not be the only one running for a VP nominee. <laughs> right. uh, you know, that is, uh, I think it still would be, he would be the darkest of dark horses if he actually emerged as the nominee at the end of it. Um, but he has impressed a lot of people, gotten some donors and, and, and picked up some momentum. Um Budamentum uh, in the last uh, week or so. I hadn't heard that phrase before. There we go. Uh, and and it, it's he's sort of the mirror opposite of Beto, if you will. I mean, he's pretty. He's a substantive guy. He's a very substantive guy, and um, he's got that executive experience. In fact, he sort of jokingly says he has more executive experience than Joe Biden. Debatably, yes. Yeah. Um, running committees in uh, the vice presidential office might be a little bit of executive experience. I, I, um, I, I think you could argue that, yes. <laughs> uh, but I would say that uh, Buttigieg has a unique personal story. Um, he is 
uh, the first millennial candidate to run for president. He is an openly gay man. Uh, he's a veteran. I mean, his story is very compelling. I think a story gets you uh, in the door. Uh, it's much harder to get uh, uh, to the top of the of the charts after that. Mm-hmm. Now, how is um, Peter's governor doing, Larry Hogan? <laughs> We keep waiting for him to go to New Hampshire. Wasn't he supposed, He's supposed to? to be in New Hampshire? I thought this week he wasn't in New Hampshire. This week. He was speaking at the at the St. Patrick's dinner here in town this weekend. Uh, yeah, um, I know. He's I, and he, I forget. Had made some jokes about, but I, he hasn't hasn't gone. Has he? Yet he hasn't. You know what? I'm still convinced somebody runs other than Bill Weld. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. the uh, Jeb Bush was quoted last week as saying he thinks someone he, should run. I saw that. Um, to me, that's... John Kasich was quoted as saying somebody should run, but it's not going to be him, right? And so Jeff Flake, somebody should run, but it's not going to be me. I, I mean, mean, to me, those are signs, though, that there's people talking about it, right? I mean, um, you don't need... You don't need the runway these Democrats need to mount a primary challenge. You can do it and launch in June. Um, I mean, they have a lot more time if there's only going to be one of you. Um, so I, I would not count out until we get to July, maybe, that, that a primary opponent is in the making. Well, yeah. Uh, I think it's important for the country and for the party, the Republican Party, that there be a challenge. I'm sure that person would get nothing but direct outright attacks by Donald Trump, right? So lots of, lots of tweets. That'll scare a lot of people off for sure. <laughs> Ginger, it's great to see you. Great to see Thanks you. Thanks so much. 2020 just keeps getting more exciting every day. You can follow Ginger Gibson at Reuters, Reuters.com. Make the most of this Monday, folks, and then come back and see us tomorrow. We'll be here looking for you. This is the Bill Press Show.